The word of God from Mark 33. This is 9, 33 through 37. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please uh, remain standing as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we worship you and we commend this time to you. Lord, we're coming um, to you uh, from different places. Some of us are weary. Some of us are anxious. Some are joyful, filled with faith, but not all of us. And so uh, we need help. And who else um, ought we to call to except for you? You who hears our prayers. So we call to you, Spirit, soften our hearts. Um, help us to see your beauty and your grace, to love you, to serve you. For we pray this in the name of the Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Ronnie. If you are new here, I'm the pastor. You, if you're visiting, you've caught us in this sort of sermon series this summer on the Gospel of Mark. And the, the passage that we're studying uh, this morning <clears throat> comes right after two key events that we've studied these last few weeks. Uh, the first one is Peter's confession. Uh, you'll remember that he says that Jesus is the Christ, like he is the anointed one, the the, the, the king. And then from there, uh, Jesus took just three of the 12 disciples, just three, not all of them, Peter, James, and John, and he took them up on the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And it was amazing and supernatural. And uh, so these three guys, right, they have no doubt after all that they've been seeing that Jesus means business. Like he is the real thing. Now, after teaching about his death and resurrection, as Jesus had done before, he says to them, he says, hey, zip it. Like, no one talk about this to anyone anymore. Uh, now, I explored this about a month ago, um, but, but, but we ought to ask, like, why is Jesus always asking his guys to, like, keep this on the DL, like on the down low? And, and we answered that by saying there's two reasons. First, claiming to be God, claiming to be king in Rome was punishable by death. I mean, this is like sedition of the highest order. So now listen, Jesus is on his way to the cross, but, but his timing and getting there was important. He didn't want 
to get crucified too quickly because he still had teachings and things that he needed to say and do. And the second reason why he's always telling them to keep it on the DL is that even if the disciples did tell people about Jesus's kingship, they would mess it up. Like they don't even know what they're talking about because their ideas of kings and kingdoms and power, it's all like backwards. Like their notions of kingdoms and greatness have all been shaped by what they have learned in the Roman Empire, in, in the culture in which they reside. And it's all wrong. So he says, like, hey, keep it on the DL. Now, our passage today, we're going to see Jesus take a moment to teach about greatness. He's going to deconstruct their notions of greatness. And guess what? That's right. He's going to do it for us, too. He's going to deconstruct our notions of greatness. Now, some of you hearing that that's like the, the proposition of the sermon, you think, oh, that, that's honestly, Ronnie, uh, pretty irrelevant. If I'm honest, uh, I mean, I could understand why other people would care about the cars that they drive or the neighborhoods that they live in. Like, I don't even care that I'm in Wash Park or Cherry Creek. I don't even care, right? I'm above all that. And listen, even if you have no desire to win a popularity contest, you too have been seduced by notions of greatness. Your idea of li living a decent, secure, respectable life has all been contaminated in ways you can't even understand. Your desire for comfort, for security, good things, but they're all bundled up together. <laughs> and we need Jesus to use a simple passage to challenge us and to break us down. And so as we study this passage, Jesus is going to teach us in the same way that he taught his disciples to understand greatness as children do, as children do. And so how, how is Jesus going to do this? No takers. This is, your, this is your moment. Jesus is going to liken true greatness to first being a servant and then second greatness as receiving a child. So greatness as being a servant and greatness as receiving a child. And, and those two actually have a relationship. So we're going to explore, the, um, explore them together as we kind of work through our text this morning. So let's begin with our first point, greatness as being a servant. Now, if you've been around the church much, um, this probably this passage we read this morning is probably not unfamiliar. Uh, in fact, it I don't know, I, I've heard the sermon preached often, multiple times. I suppose probably it hasn't sunk in uh, to most of us. That's what I'm gonna suggest here. Uh, and if I, I'm not even saying I'm gonna do a better job than the other sermons that you've heard on this. Uh, but if I blow it today, and I might, what I want you to do is just keep an eye on the children in your presence, because they might actually teach you something about greatness. Now, why do I say all this? Chapter 9, the placement of this text in the Gospel of Mark is really significant. This is like biblical literary analysis, right? This is what Ty Gregory is always doing when he preaches to us, right? It's, it, the placement of the text is really specific. So if you'll recall, 
Jesus' influence is growing. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's healing people. He's miraculously feeding people. Demonic forces are on the run. He has this huge crowd that is forming and looking for him. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, just saw him radiating, like glowing. And now the disciples are like, oh, hold up. All right. Jesus is on to something. Like, he's going to do something. This thing's going to happen. And so they kind of have these thoughts of, because they're good Jews, right? They have these thoughts of like King David, or even better, King Solomon, powerful, rich. These disciples are going to give up smelly fish and move on to bigger and better things. This is like, the, they're like the Beverly Hill hillbillies. Six people know what cultural reference I'm talking about here. Now, the disciples are thinking perhaps they could ride Jesus' coattails into power. You know, to, to walk the streets of Jerusalem and to be noticed, that would feel good. So Peter, James, John, being only the only three of the 12 who are invited up on the mountain, those three, they feel extra special. But among the three of them, a discussion ensues. And let's be honest, it's like they're kind of having it out, right? We are not told the exact nature of their banter, but it might be something like this. If Jesus is king, then I got dibs on secretary of the state, right? Something like that, right? In other words, they're, they're posturing for positions of promise and greatness, prominence. So when they return home, where they were staying, uh, Jesus asks, verse 33, right? he says, hey, like what, what were you guys talking about back there? And he knows, right? Now, he knows what's happening, uh, but the three, they, these jokers, they didn't want to own up, right? Because verse 34 tells us that they would have had to admit that they were arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 35 says that Jesus sat down, called the rest, right? Twelve disciples. Now that phrase, look there in verse 35, that phrase that says they sat down. In that culture, because we read past this, that meant that Jesus began to teach as a rabbi would, with authority. And so what does he say? So he offers two pictures that are meant to disturb to interrupt their notions of greatness, of what it means to be great. So first he says, if any one of you would be first, he must be last and servant of all. All right, wait a second. So I thought being first is first and being last is last. Like kids, right? Talk me through this. If you're first in line at the buffet, uh, what does that mean? It means that you're first, you get the good stuff, it's not gross by the time you get there, and oh, by the way, you're eating first. First is first. So what's Jesus talking about? Because he's never been to a buffet line. Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, sure, you can be first, but then you can't be great. Greatness, according to Jesus, is not defined by getting your way. 
according to Jesus, it is defined by serving others. And in fact, the whole kingdom of God is completely contrary and upside down to the way our world works. Like in our world, like what are the cultural indicators that tell you that you are valuable? Our culture has these unspoken but very well understood orders that communicate value. Don't believe me? Work through this. Are you um, smart or are you just average? Are you skinny or are you portly? Are you rich or you're just okay? Are you popular? Or are you insignificant? When people look for you, even as I say these, you know that these are the kinds of indicators that tell you if your relative status according to the society in which you live. These are the things, one of the things that I said that you work for, right? These are the paradigms that order our priorities and even give us a self-understanding. How come? Because this is the system that you and I are operating on even if we think we don't want glory. Even if we say that. Doesn't matter. You've been assimilated. But Jesus breaks into our world and he says, yeah, the entire system has to be overthrown. All the markers that communicate value and status and greatness those things are trash. Do you want to be great? I mean, do you want to be truly great? Now listen, because don't, like, don't over-spiritualize this. Don't say, well, I'm a Christian. I prefer humility. I don't care about greatness. Yeah, Jesus wants you to care about it. Jesus wants you to be great. The problem is not greatness. The problem, according to Jesus, is what we think greatness is. The problem is our definitions. The problem is our markers for greatness, those things that communicate that we're great. Jesus wants you to be great. And what that means is you must be last of all, a servant. Now, there's so much that this could mean. And I would want you to take time this week to hang out with a friend and say, hey, can we talk about what greatness would look like if Jesus is right about this? Like I want you to do, that's your homework. Let me give you just one kind of low-hanging fruit in the context of church, because that's where we are. Let me start with preferences. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you must be last, a servant. And Jesus embodies this by leaving the riches of heaven and taking on the form of a servant one who hangs on a cross for us. And we say, do we really have to meet at Bruce Randolph? You hear that, like, the air conditioning is, like, buzzing. It bothers me. Uh, I don't like the music style. Okay, we do. We do like it, Adam. No one hates it. Um, I, don't, I don't like socializing at church. Like, literally, guys, there are entire churches that split up based on music preferences. 
Get your brain around that. Jesus dies on a cross and we're splitting up because we don't like the music of a church. Can you see how this is absolutely incompatible with like this whole body of Christ followers who should be saying, I am a servant of the most high servant. I'll do anything. Take my preferences. I'll put them last. I'm here to serve. I mean, goodness, y'all, if like this entire church would, would be so enamored and so nuts about Jesus that they begin to act like that, promise the church would fill up. Why? Why? Because that kind of love and service and cheerfulness is enchanting. Because that's, that's fragrance of the kingdom. That's the kingdom being expressed here on earth, the one that you and I were all made for. Being last and serving is prized in the kingdom where Jesus is king. Now, there's more to say. Y'all have your homework. Let's, let's move on to our second point. So what more does it mean to be great? And this question moves us to the second part of our passage, and that's greatness as understood as receiving a child. Now, I'm not even like, I'm not even going to talk about Roe v. Wade in this sermon today, but just observe the force of how Jesus' social ethics as they're displayed in just this very simple narrative, how his social ethics shaped a people for 2,000 years. Just let, let, that, let, let those observations kind of work on you just as we read this very simple story. So right after Jesus observes, you know, makes the bombshell, he's like, yeah, the first or last, and you gotta be a servant. Then in verse 36, he signals to a child who happily crawls up into Jesus' lap, and with a child warmly nested close to his heart, Jesus looks his disciples in the eyes, and he says, verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. Jesus clearly treasures little children, a man who never had children. Like he's a single dude who loves children. Why is this so significant? According to first century culture in the Roman Empire, and really the whole ancient Near East, children are socially invisible. No one missed children when they weren't around. No one threw expensive birthday parties, right? It's, that would be completely unheard of, right? Children, I'm really sorry to mention this to you, but prior to Christian ethics socializing the whole Western world, no one cared about children, right? That's the context of Mark 9. Children were often discarded if they became a burden to their father. Motherhood being a sacred vocation, what? No. That's new, y'all. That's new. Jesus changed everything. With Christ, children, babies, they became privileged members 
of the people of God. Christians were the only ones who had rituals like baptism to prize their babies. Only Christians do that. So what exactly is it that's intrinsic to children that according to Jesus, adults should make room for them and to receive them? Well, listen, what Jesus is not doing is highlighting their moral excellency. All right, I just want to throw that out there. All right, yeah, that's, that's funny, but not funny, right? Um, and here's really what it is. There's a couple things. First, little ones convey remarkable need. I can remember when the twins were itty-bitty, walking into their room every morning to the smell of a ripe diaper, and they'd be smiling, talking gibberish, and they would stand up, hold their arms to me. Why? They need me. They know they need me. I know they need me. They like the arrangement. They need me to get out of their crib. They need me for food. They need me for a clean diaper. And that's just the beginning. A small child does not like to be far from their mommy and daddy because they need help all the time. So like Mia would look me in the eyes with a small grin and enlist my help. And that would happen all the time. I mean, she would crawl up to me 100 times a day as if to say, I need your help. And there's no doubt in Mia's mind that she needs my help. And she unceasingly would cry out to me every day. And if I'm honest, every night. Amen, Fitzgeralds, right? All right. There is a supreme vulnerability of a child and no problem in their spirit laying their life out in utter dependence upon their parents. Like in a child, there is no sinful self-sufficiency. Mia joyfully unashamedly, unapologetically knew her need for me all, at all times. And this is true of you and God, but you don't know it like a baby knows it. And you might even be embarrassed that you need God as much as your child needs, uh, as much as a child needs a parent. So on one hand, the first observation is that children are joyfully dependent. Receive the child. There's a second aspect intrinsic to children, and it is this. It is a complete lack of concern for status. My children, when they were little, never complained that they had to ride in my janky 1999 Honda Accord with the bumper like hanging off of it. They weren't embarrassed about it. They're not ashamed of me. They didn't complain about my job, which was like kind of an oath of poverty at the time. They don't care about my cash flow. My kids don't care if half their wardrobe is Kirkland brand because it's the cheap Costco stuff. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's what we could afford. They don't look at my dinner table and say, really, mom, I'd really like a few more forks and spoons on both sides of this plate. 
See, in children, there's not only this joyful, profound uh, dependence and vulnerability, but there's also this blessed and utter disregard for status. And because that is the case, they're free to live as servants of others. Like, listen, you guys, your ch- ch- the children, maybe you don't have children, so maybe you don't have them, but you're around children. And, and if, you'll just, if you'll receive them like Jesus did, you, what you'll notice is that they are really generous. My kids have come to me with their piggy bank desiring to pay the electricity bill when the AC was, was left on. A little context, I used to live in Puerto Rico. 32 cents a kilowatt hour. You, we don't have like AC that for the whole house, you just cool the room that you're in. And if you left a room on and it just ran all night, you'll get a bill for five or $600. That happened a few times because we have kids. And I'd be like, what are we gonna do? Like I have a $600 electricity bill. And my, parents, and my kids come with their piggy bank. I have one to help. Take them, take them all. They would give it all up. They don't feel any pressure to stockpile their pennies to make sure that they can maintain some kind of reputation with someone else, right? Teaching my children to tithe has been so easy. It's super hard for us adults, super easy for children. They love to give the first 10% of everything they receive to the church. That's it's not like even a painful exercise for them. It's literally like breathing for them. It's not hard for them. Receive the child. Learn from the child. Generosity is easily learned because they don't care about the cost. They don't care about status. For them, there's no trade-off with something that gives them status. There's no desire for it. It's for our children. It's all joy that they could give their pennies. These children who in the Roman Empire were like not strategic, they were low status, they were invisible. They're the ones who are invited to be welcomed in. You are to receive them, even learn from them. And when you receive these children, let them teach you. Goodness gracious, you guys, like, we desperately need to learn about like biblical spirituality from our little ones. Jesus says, when you receive them, you receive him. And not only him, but the father too. By receiving children, you are learning about true greatness, which comes from a complete lack of concern or lack of desire for status. So let me revisit what I said earlier. Many of you don't perceive yourself to be hungry for status. I mean, I don't know that any of us just woke up and just be like, hey, I just want status. Like, like, who does that? I believe that, I do. I believe that none of us wake up like that, but all of us have bought into the system. Uh, This week, I was actually just reading about the discriminatory roots of housing developments. Actually, Meg Brown, we actually have a specialist and expert on this in our church. But like since the 1980s, one, um, 
One sociologist noticed that Americans have increasingly sorted themselves into communities of their own kind. And housing, of course, is one of the most obvious. So property taxes are purposely increased in order to screen out other demographics. School tuition, same thing. Entire self-contained communities were designed in order to attract a certain demographic while at the same time screening out others. Our clubs, our memberships all do the same thing. Now, I'm not saying that any of us woke up with this sort of express and premeditated goal, but what I am saying is breaking the system is absolutely scary to us. We're comfortable with the system of status. It tells us who we are. Even if we're not asking, it tells us who we are. Now listen, this is like, please, I'm a pastor. This is not an indictment. There are tons of successful, wealthy people who are absolutely nuts about Jesus. You could see how they spend their time, how they spend their cash. There's no debate that they love Jesus. And yet, what Jesus is calling us to is to receive the child, receive the one with no status, who's completely vulnerable and dependent, and even to learn from that one by prioritizing children. If you do, if you will prioritize children, your heart will break open to Jesus himself. Listen, if you can't make time for children, then you won't make time for Jesus. That's the heart of verse 37. That's what he's saying. In fact, if you don't make time for children, you will actually grow to be a little bit embarrassed of Jesus. Like without children interrupting our lives, like they are the single most humanizing force for us. And if you don't make time for them, we won't get humanized, and then Jesus will become distant to us. Identifying with Jesus, well, then it will become cringy. It'll be hard to, like, love Jesus too much in our world. Like, you love him, but it'll feel cringy if you're just, like, too courageous about loving Jesus. Because it ruins our status, you say. If you love Jesus too much, your status goes down. Identifying with Jesus requires a new kind of greatness. Greatness that comes by surrendering status, just as our children do. That's what's going on in the text. All right, let me, let me quickly conclude. Jesus does care about greatness, but it is a completely different system than the one that you and I have been indoctrinated into. And so to summarize what we've learned today, Jesus wants us to be great by being a servant and to be great by receiving children who, although they were socially invisible, they teach us about utter dependence and a disregard for status. All right, let me, as I close, let me bring our attention to one more detail because this is one of those sermons, I don't know, man, it's like, uh, I don't want to leave us feeling empty or just preached at. So this scene is a little bit embarrassing for the, for the disciples. Uh, Jesus has caught the disciples jockeying for greatness. 
They're craving glory. And that's weird, right? Isn't it just weird? It's a little bit uncomfortable, if we're honest. Listen, this is why it's so important. Jesus, please listen to me. Jesus was witness to the sins for which he will suffer infinitely and die. Jesus was witness to the sins for which he will willingly suffer and die. Jesus sees the disciples at their worst. And and the thing is, it's like the disciples aren't even done yet. Like they're going to have this crazy, the same crazy debate a few more times. I mean, even the night before Jesus was crucified, right? That Thursday in the upper room, they're still jogging for status. I mean, it's crazy. Even James and John's mom is going to get in on this. Like she is like this crazy helicopter mom for adult men. Like it's wild. She's going to get in on this too. She's going to pull Jesus aside like, Jesus, can I have a word? Hey, can you make sure that my boys get some benefits of greatness in your kingdom? Like literally read the Bible. That's what she's going to say. It's crazy. Like, it's unthinkable. Jesus saw everything these guys did, and he was not too good for them. He was not embarrassed by them. He wasn't embarrassed to be seen in public with these jokers. Like, he loved them. He knew the depth of their sin, and he joyfully marched to a cross, and he hung there. Why? Because he loves them. He absolutely loves them. And he loves you too. He's not ashamed of you. He gave up status in heaven to purchase you. And when this love this belief that Jesus has surrendered his status for you, when that becomes real in your heart, you'll begin to feel ready to pursue greatness God's way. Let's do that. Can we do that together as a church? Amen. Amen.